Hello, hello, welcome to the home spun yak. Today's, well, I would say a special episode because now, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone else, I present to you, back from the doomed, the cripple of the forest, the ACL king, the legless hats, Mr. Kyle Hatley. Woo! <laughs> Welcome back. Wow, what an introduction. That's uh, unexpected. <laughs> I thought it might be. But incredibly accurate. <laughs> and, uh, we well, have, it's good we to be another... back, but yeah, we do have another guest as well. <laughs> we may or may not have alluded to this guest in the past. Um, we'll let the <laughs> listeners decide, but um, he's here and he's ready to record. So um, this is Will Haynes, and we'll give the mic over to Will to do a little bit of an intro and just kind of maybe segue into what he wants to talk about today. Yeah, let's do Will. Hey, how you doing, everybody out there? Uh, the the shaken, legless, last-minute fence builder, he, he exists, so here I am, everyone. Uh, I'm Kyle's friend, Will, from his soccer team. Uh, known him for a long time now. Seen him go through two ACL surgeries, so commiserations to the end of your career <laughs> it was kind of a little bit my fault there was a ball that went over my head no, no. Kyle had to do a bit of defense <laughs> he thought he could back kill it around someone and uh well that was the end of that <laughs> so but, uh yep I'm Will a bit bit different from Kyle and Nick that born in England but still lived in the Raleigh North Carolina area for a long long time so I sound like a weird, drunk Australian, perhaps. <laughs> and they're always pretty cool people, unless they're burning alive. Yeah, which is <laughs> which happening. Is happening. Yeah. Which you can now see from space. Yeah, seriously. That's pretty crazy stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's insane. And the like modern day social media now you can see people flicking off the prime minister and tell him to get the hell out of their land it's just unbelievable yeah well you've got Crazy you've got a you've got a bit of a history background too don't you oh yes uh, uh went to university back in england to study history because my church in my hometown is older than so-called white america <laughs> So uh, history and political science and of all the stuff going on today is like Kyle and I thought it'd be quite uh, a good idea, I guess, to talk about what's going on with the Iran-US uh, drama that Trump, our orange clown, seems to be trying to create. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I've been keeping up with it a little bit, but I'm sure you know quite a bit more about it and the history behind all of that, that region as well. Well, yeah, because of... Kyle and I were talking uh, just when I got here this morning um, about the size of Iran, the, the history of Iran. It's uh, a different beast to Afghanistan, Iraq, and the 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 people you see on social media and and you can talk to here. Conservatives are gung ho and want to go in and blast a country up that has a history of thousands of years, uh, culture. The, and you just, it's uh, absolutely mind blowing. Asinine, I might say. 
<laughs> that's that's uh, my my word I've stolen from the podcast from you, Nick. <laughs> Asinine. <laughs> I think the first time I ever heard that was uh, from Stephen A. Smith on ESPN. <laughs> well, I've listened to about 10 of your podcasts. Not all I caught up, but there's probably about 10, 10 asinines so far. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't realize you say it, but you say it a lot, apparently. <laughs> I Many listeners now say it because of you. <laughs> I'm glad I can bring notoriety to the to the word. <laughs> so yeah, what, what what are your opinions about the whole Iran situation? I'm kind of curious how both what you both of you guys think about it. Well, I think you've alluded to this in a couple of the episodes I've listened to that it's leaders and, and not the people of the country that want these sort of things, right? Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Most Iranians I've ever met are incredibly smart people, actually fairly liberal, maybe perhaps because they went to a university and a Western university. But uh, the American Iranians of Iranian, you know, heritage, they seem to be very, very nice. And nobody wants any of these things. And that's the, that's the really scary part that we now live in a modern age where one man in America for I don't know how many days it is, I think 60 days can wage uh, unconstitutional war. And really the threat that he's laid down to dis- destroy military economic sites as well as cultural heritage sites, which is really, really scary to me. Mm-hmm. And these 52 and to have that correlate to the 52 uh, you know, people that were stolen at the embassy, you know, hostages. It's just a really, really scary idea that he has the power to really disrupt and make this region even worse than it already is. Do you uh, do you know some of the history of how this escalated up to this point? Because somebody was talking, I think on NPR, they were talking about how Obama and uh, I believe Bush both didn't want to kill I, I don't know the guy's name i forgot what the general's <clears throat> name is but um, i think it was like sulami something okay. sulemi okay he so. was a bad guy okay, okay. <laughs> a very bad guy and we got him <laughs> yeah yeah I, I liked how at the end of his speech or at that particular point he was like we got him and then he was just like waited there waiting for some sort of impactful reply from everyone. <laughs> yeah, that was if people are just floored, they're like, You didn't tell anybody about this. Like <laughs> we don't really know how to respond right now. Right. What I mean, there's so many different repercussions that could come from this. We just don't really know what avenue this could go down. Because they were going to do like a certain period of mourning the whole country, because he was the second most popular person in in the whole country. Yeah, right. So after that, then they're going to decide. I don't know yeah. what measures they want to take. I don't know what they actually can do, but I think Will saw something breaking news today. What they decided. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So Kyle and I were checking out good old. BBC before the podcast went live and the MPs in the Iraqi parliament have actually voted to expel all US forces from the country of Iraq. So we'll see if it actually happens, if there's going to be some sort of thing Trump and the administration can do to have some stupid, ridiculous small font somewhere and keep the troops there. But 
that's a pretty huge breaking news to say that that's a, a way the region can fight back against the US, I guess, yeah. instead of militarily, politically wise. Will, do you know, do you know much about the relationship between Iraq and Iran, at least uh, currently? Well, I mean, you can kind of think of it as two huge countries. So if you look at a parallel, you can say like United States and Canada. So Canada being a smaller population be Iraq, the United States being Iran. And imagine if Canada and the United States fought a war for the entire decade of the 1980s that was really, really catastrophic to both countries. And now a U.S. military general that really is backing terrorist organizations throughout North America, say that, say that U.S. person was in Canada and was assassinated. It's kind of crazy to see that 25, 30 years later, the, the, the Iraqis have almost united in their hatred to the United States and the West with Iran. Mm. And now they have joined sides and they're more powerful together. And that's our doing. That's that's the Western powers being in these countries for getting close to 20 years. And that's what happens, right? Do you think, um, do you think that kind of speaking to that in general terms, do you think that there's a situation in which the United States can have an influence in the Middle East without having some sort of negative outcome that continuously comes out of it? Because it seems like we've been in the Middle East for quite some time now, um, even before, I guess, what, the Gulf War. And it seems like regardless, we there tends to be some sort of negative outcome that comes out of it, if that's with, because we were, I guess what we, in the past, we sided with Iraq at one point, And then, uh, of course, then we invaded Iraq later on. It just seems like there's a constant turmoil and it seems to be because, or at least partly because the United States keeps intervening. Well, the the biggest reason for any conflict with the West and uh, the Middle East, the, the entire region, the Arab, larger nation, I guess, and, and the Western powers would stem from our alliance with the nation of Israel and, and the country of Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And when those countries fight proxy wars in the region, like like uh, fight so-called rebels, what we would say maybe independence fighters in Yemen, um, the people in Israel build a giant wall and make a giant ghetto in the Gaza Strip and West Bank. When the rest of the Arab nations look at that, those nations is Saudi Arabia and Israel can only do that because they have the backing of the U.S. It's, it's this big giant threat, this big black cloud that hangs over the region that everyone's really scared of, but they almost unite in a hatred against it. And there's a lot of countries like France, Germany, Spain have tried to distance themselves in the last two, three, four decades from the United States. Uh, England, England, Great Britain, United Kingdom is now distance themselves also and it's really almost the u.s alone in this region and 
everybody almost wants them out. And what would happen if they if the U.S. completely left? There'd be a huge vacuum of power in a lot of these countries, and it could get worse. But we'll never know unless we do pull out. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think like our allies in the Middle East now are in more trouble, you know, like Israel and Saudi Arabia and things like that, that are surrounded by this sort of legions of legion of uh, countries who are now building up a track record of hatred toward us. And they're kind of now starting to work together where they didn't work together ever before. They're like, well, how can we hurt them more is by teaming up to hurt their allies of the region too. So now we're just putting other countries in danger as well by utilizing reckless behavior. Um, but we'll see what comes of it. I don't know. I don't. I haven't really heard Israel's take on it, but I'd be interested to hear if they actually supported Trump and his decision to do that, or if they've said anything at all. Um, I imagine they probably support it, but I don't know how they've actually vocalized it. One really, really important thing to say there is apparently the Trump administration informed the Israeli government before they informed the greater U.S. government about the attack. Hmm. Well, there you go. That's interesting. Huh. I guess just because they're closer to the action? I don't know. Seems kind of strange, though, regardless. Yeah. Yeah, usually you inform your own people before you involve a different government. So <laughs> it's a quite a peculiar thing. It's almost a fine strand of treason right there. <laughs> Just add that to the list. <laughs> add, la- add that li- to the least list of impeachable offenses. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess with the impeachment thing, that's supposed to come to a, I don't know, they well, they want to make a final decision in the Senate by February, apparently. But, you know, like I said, I mean, nothing will come of it. Yeah. In fact, I think maybe even the impeachment whole process has uh, solidified his base even more against Democrats to say, you know what, like, we're in this together. We, we're going to go down swinging and we're going to vote even more for Trump than we did last time because we feel like he's being ganged up on. Um, so I think in some ways it, it might have even helped him for 2020. Yeah. And I know you're happy about that, Nick, but I'm not. <laughs> Thank you for that, Kyle. <laughs> you know, it's funny is like when, when somebody calls you out, even in a joking way, it, it's almost like you have to get defensive because you just want to make sure you're not aligned with, you don't want to be, come off as this like super unintelligent person. <laughs> That's what it feels like when, I, when I'm being associated to, to, to Mr. Trump. <laughs> There's there's right wing articles about you now. <laughs> oh great! <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's a tricky business. Uh, do you think? Do you think that? I guess this is a question for both of you guys. Do you guys think that 
So based off my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, Will, but in I think it was, what, 1946 when Britain uh, kind of carved out this whole uh, Israel territory and then ended up giving up that, I don't know, some sort of control to the United States, something along those lines, like there's some sort of a passage of of entitlement. I don't, I don't know how to exactly describe it. Do you think that if that had never happened, that some of these uh, problems that we're having now, or really that we've had over the last, you know, 60, 70 years, do you think that that would still be the case today? Uh, I, I honestly think that no matter what Western powers involved with Israel, no matter who tried, it's always going to come to a, this is a small, tiny sliver of land. We both believe in mythological beings that are associated with certain buildings or areas in this small sliver of land. We're going to fight here. We were here first. That's the way it's going to be. It's always, always going to be like that. Unless they can get on together, they can't just build giant concrete walls around them. And the way they treat one another, one each one has the upper hand because it goes through centuries where uh, the Palestinians may have more power, where the country of Israel is in the present state has the United States backing, technological improvements. They they oppress each other so much that it looks like they can really never get on. And there's always certain hot points in the world where you look at and you think this is where actual entire war could wage because of this one hot point and it's very similar to sort of the yugoslavia situation prior to world war one that it, it wasn't a coincidence that the archduke was assassinated and it became a war it was we were looking at that from the 1870s it took 40 years to get there of of people bombing royal members of, of attacking Serbian governments, the Ottoman Empire. It's just the way it was. And we've been looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict since my entire ch childhood and now adulthood. It's something we've always lived with. It never goes more than three years before Hezbollah is launching a missile or there's a new uprising and bulldozing houses in the West Bank and new settlements coming up and then more suicide bombers. It's it's, it's a it's an everyday occurrence that's become normalized in our life. So we shouldn't be shocked if this is a place in the world where it the next huge war erupts from. We really shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to think in that situation you gotta really hope that there's enough restraint that it doesn't turn into a nuclear war on top of that. Cause I mean, we've, we've really any conflict that we've had since then has, hasn't been, there's always been the threat of course, but uh, it's, it's never come to actual nuclear war, which would be devastating. And that's, that was kind of my point in previous podcasts that it's just, it seems so ridiculous that you have this power uh, in the hands of just a few individuals that, end up making these life altering historical, I mean, I, I don't even have big enough words to describe. I mean, it, it would be the end of our species, you know, just, just because of this tie kind of like what you said to these, uh, to these particular plots of land, 
that are just decided this is ours and uh, we're going to defend this to the death, even if it causes our entire species to go extinct. Yeah. It's kind of similar in uh, India, Pakistan as well. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be an area in Asia that's been, I don't know if it's been more land disputes or cultural, but I don't know. That's an area where, you know, nuclear war is a realistic possibility in the future too, because that technology is actually there. But then on the other side of it, it's like when all these powers have access to nuclear weapons, it's more in an incentive incentive for people not to use them because they know that they're going to get it back just as badly. Um, and I guess that's kind of like the cold war where it's like, we both knew we had them, but it's like, who's going to, who's going to actually use them first. Cause if someone fires one off, there's going to be another one coming in your direction pretty soon. And it'll just end everything. Like you said, so it's like a checks and balances kind of thing. Obviously, we don't want everybody to have them. That's why North Korea is, you know, been so hotly contested over the past decades. And, and Iran, actually, too. It's like they've been trying to stop them forever. And now you got to think that they're going to try to ramp up their uh, nuclear technology and weaponry even more now because they're fearful of airstrikes coming nearer to their country. And just, we have so much access of the air in the middle East that they're like, we have to do something extreme now. Right. Yeah. I've I've always thought it was a peculiar that countries have such large nuclear arsenals that they can blow the world up hundreds of times over. It's always, been a weird perplexing thing to me that never made any sense but kyle's right that iran is 100 percent sure they're gonna try and ramp up their things maybe they already have them and they haven't told us yet if they did have them maybe they'd parade them down the streets and look like idiots in america coming straight away and blow up their country so maybe they do have that sort of stuff but i've always thought too that who are we to say that we've got these things you can't have them why what why can we play god in that scenario yeah that's a good point uh unfortunately regardless of ethics i mean ethics are are fantastic morals are fantastic in terms of giving us boundaries and giving us guidelines and kind of keeping us in check but ultimately what really keeps us in check is the ultimate fate of death so if you have a power that can cause other powers to succumb to specifically that just crumbling and dying then that's the ultimate i that's the ultimate power i I don't know how else to describe it so uh i think the united states just has a a bit of a i mean certainly arrogant but i i don't think that they're necessarily thinking about the moral issue like what you just brought up which i agree with uh, why, you know, why are we stepping in? Why are, do we feel that we can have, you know, thousands of these missiles, these nuclear missiles and uh, other countries aren't, or only select other countries are allowed to have a certain number of nuclear missiles as well. And I think it just comes down to, well, we just want to retain the power 
and uh, we just don't consider, at least on a government level, we don't consider the, the, the moral aspect because it's, it's inconsequential. I mean, there's some random countries that have nuclear weapons, you know, like South Africa and stuff. You're like, why, why have you got nukes for, you know, like <laughs> it just, it's, it's kind of bizarre, but you're right. It's an elite club that have them. Then they want to keep the status quo that way and no one else can have them. And sometimes you can understand, you go, man, North Korea, if they had a nuke, what would they do? Maybe they do nothing. Maybe they waste all their money and just build a nuclear weapon and we're wasting our time and trying to stop them having one. But, Right. We'll never know. We just don't know those things. But yeah, if you look out the countries that have them, there's some really random ones. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too uh, too up to date on who who all has nuclear weapons. I know. I guess several of the European countries, United States, uh, uh, Russia. I'm assuming China does. And I don't. I didn't know South Africa had had nuclear weapons. That is a bit bizarre. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Come on, Belgium. What have you got a nuke for? You know, like, like, why do you have a nuke? I know you got invaded twice, but like, come on. Every German and nice German, no French person is going to invade you. You do not need a nuke. They got. I guess they got scared after World War One and two people coming through their area. But um, yeah, I've got the list here. Of countries that have nuclear weapons. It says North Korea does, but maybe they have just nuclear capabilities. Yeah. It says uh, China, China, France, <laughs> India, Pakistan. Okay, that's great. Russia, the US, which I think Russia has more that are like lost or deactivated than they have like active and ready to go what does that mean that they lost i don't know they didn't lose them (laughs) but it's like (laughs) there's so many that have been decommissioned uh israel uh iran apparently Uh, and again that's probably more of just nuclear technology Mm -hmm. the uk south africa the netherlands Belgium and Kazakhstan. Okay. <laughs> Kazakhstan just kind of fell under the radar there. Those Kazakhstani ones are just like random missile silos that were left in the, when it was the USSR. Uh, they yeah. can't be moved. And like, oh, thank you. We have a missile now. <laughs> uh, I thought Ukraine actually inherited like the Russian black fleet that had nukes too, like in, I guess, 1991 when it broke away. But I think Russia quickly came and swept him back. But anyway, going back to South Africa, if think if you lived in the absolute slums of Johannesburg or Cape Town and you saw these rich, white. predominantly white people, you know, and they're spending money in the government to have nuclear weaponry, yeah, it would drive me berserk. For sure. Yeah, who's targeting South Africa? Goes <laughs> pesky lions, and yeah, Mozambicans, great white sharks, probably. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what's crazy is our president right now would t- it would not it would not shock me if he said we need to nuke the sharks. <laughs> I could totally see him saying something like that. 
I bet you he wants to poison the Chinese with shark fin soup. <laughs> oh. It's a it's a crazy world out there for sure. I don't know. WMDs are just one one aspect. And going back to sharks, um, <laughs> I just I just did a quick Google search and I asked Google. How many sharks are killed a year? Do you want to take a guess at how many sharks are killed a year, Nick? I don't know, a million. Okay, close. Do you, you do you know? You probably know. I don't know, but I know it's something astronomical. I'd say like nine hundred million. Oh, whoa! And, and, I, <laughs> and, I, and I and I think they kill like ten humans or something stupid like that. And there's probably five member, five more old friends getting high and surfing in Reunion Island. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, it's a hundred million. Jeez, even that's so, crazy. That's pretty nuts. Um, yeah, it's just I don't know. I guess the majority of that is is happening like by the Japanese and certain Asian nations located by bodies of water yeah who deem shark fins and things like that to be because a lot of times they'll just grab a shark chop the fin off and then throw it back right and then it just i guess will die a slow death after that or i don't know what happens but um, it's pretty insane i mean that's like a third of the u.s getting killed every year well, once you put it in those, yeah, we got to do something now. Now I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> I got to do something. That's the most right wing thing you guys have ever said. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw a thing where actually Leo. It reminded me because Leo tweeted that hundred. He just said hundred million sharks die a year. That's all he said. <laughs> no, no solution. Just put it out there. That's helpful. Yeah. I want to be one of those activists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just letting people know. I, I haven't listened to many of the episodes yet, but you did do a good rant on that. That was good. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was probably on my rainforest one, which that can oh, that yeah. I can totally just... Just snapshot that and just add it to the Australia one. Yeah. A lot of people are sharing about Australia. That's great. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> I have decided. <laughs> uh, well, I, I drew a koala and put it on my fr- refrigerator <laughs> just to, me- just in, you know, as a memory. Is it fur melting off? No, that's no, that's too dark. <laughs> yeah, it's too dark. Exactly. <laughs> oh man, it's really funny because it is that kind of stuff. <laughs> I bought a sticker for ten cents. <laughs> Put it on my car. Save the rainforest. Yep. <laughs> so everybody can see that I care. Ah. <sighs> It is a lot of that kind of flexing. Yep. Right now you're flexing on some Baltimore Ravens. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the biggest fan of Lamar Jackson is in the room with me right now. Oh, really? In fact, he said. In fact, he said last night, and he said, "If Lamar Jackson proposed to me, I would say yes." <laughs> well, let's hear, hear him defend this. Ah, uh, well. Lamar, if you're out there listening, I do love you. And thank you for the greatest fantasy football season ever. You are the greatest late-round draft pick, and I'll love you forever. But to be fair, he's pretty damn amazing. And if you watch the games, I know you probably do, Nick, because you're there in the city. You must be feeling it. We were living – well, I live in North Carolina, so is Kyle. I felt like you were here when – the Panthers were on that run, you know, it's like that sort of energy in the city. Everyone's like, oh, we're unbeaten. Look how good we are. It's like, no, the Falcons are going to slap you across your face. <laughs> and so are the Broncos. But anyway, in Baltimore, it must be really, really cool. But what's so cool about Lamar himself is that when he gets tackled and hit, he just gets up with a smile on his face. He picks up his offensive lineman. If there's a defender that tackled him who's on the ground, he's reached out his hand and picks him up just seems like a really nice guy you know he's signing autographs for the kids after games he's just he's what you want an athlete to be no drama llama the guy's a beast and then when you look at what he does with his feet you know what he's going to do the other team knows exactly what the ravens are going to do yeah and they have no one can stop him no, he's pretty incredible. It seems like everybody else is kind of moving like 20 or 30% slower than he is sometimes, especially when he jukes people out. Yeah, like the highlight reel he has when he runs up and as a cornerback, you know, like a good, fast defender is supposed to be able to make an open field tackle. And he looks like he's a college player playing against a middle schooler and just running right around him yeah. and just sprinting. And now he looks like he's smart enough to sort of get on his knees a bit and get out of bounds. Cause Josh Allen, on the other hand, I don't know how he has a career, just the most reckless quarterback I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> taking massive hit after hit. And Lamar, if he wants a career in the NFL is obviously got to be intelligent with his runs and get on the ground when he's going to take a big lick. Cause he took a huge one, one week I watched and seemed to get up and keep playing. But it's weird to see a guy who has 15 or 20 completions a game with four touchdowns and 150 yards on the ground. It's just weird, but it's really cool. And no other team can stop it right now. And they're all going to try and find the next Lamar. Who they're going to find, oh, look how fast this guy that plays for North Dakota State. He's amazing. Yeah, I'm going to draft him. And then he's going to be crap. Like, I feel like this guy is a bit better than most. Yeah. No, I completely well, <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's, he's substantially better. Uh, I think, actually, who do you guys, who do you guys think is going to win the Super Bowl? I think uh, today, you know, Sunday, January 5th, I'd say the Patriots are going to win it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. The Pats are, a, it's a lock for the championship again. <laughs> Damn it, Tom. <laughs> I know you were saddened by that. I think you woke up this morning and tweeted out my hero. <laughs> my hero is 
showing signs that he's actually a person now. <laughs> yes. He's actually a real human being. He's not the God, the legend, the, the Titan that I once believed he was. <laughs> I used to get so mad about that. <laughs> <laughs> he really got under my skin. Oh, yeah. Just crazy. I mean, two decades, pretty much, he's been just an annoying little little guy, always pushing you in the back, bugging you. He's yeah. always there. Let's go to the Super Bowl. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just, just have to keep. Um, but, yeah, I I watched a little bit, actually a lot of that game, and I just could not get over Derrick Henry. Yeah. That guy is unbelievable. He is the realest of the deals. He looks Derrick Henry. Too. Yeah, I know. He looks massive. I was saying that earlier. Know, actually, how big is he? He's he's 6'3", 240. Seriously. Which is which is big for a running back. I think that's why when we see yeah. him compared to everybody else we're used to seeing just getting the ball from the backfield, yeah. he just looks like a giant. Yeah, he really looks like a giant. It's- and he is lightning fast, too, yeah. and just trucks people. He had 182 yards last night. I love that drive in the first ha- at the end of the first half. They they just gave it to him every single play, and he just drove it all the way down for a touchdown. That was crazy. So uh, one reason why fantasy football is fun, I drafted Derrick Henry in my <laughs> leagues too. Good old fourth-round running back. I just believed in a guy that could run. I mean, the second half of last season was unbelievable, but it's even better this season. You know, once, once it gets cold – and he's ran the ball for three three quarters. Defenders don't want to tackle him in the fourth quarter. They just don't. So since since week 10, week 10 was 188 yards. Week 11 was a bye. Week 12, 159 yards. Week 13, 149 yards. Week 14, 103. Week 15, 86 yards. Pulled a hamstring. Week 16 off. Week 17, 211 yards. First round of the playoffs, 182 yards. I mean, this guy is crushing it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Tannehill hasn't been that bad either. He's been he's been much better with uh, the Titans than he was with the Dolphins. Yeah, everybody played for Adam Gase is like, see you later. Look <laughs> at me, I'm Kenyon Drake, and I'm good. Yeah, like he was just a crap coach. Even that guy that was it, I can't remember his name, the safety that went to the Steelers and just crushed it and had like six picks this year. Oh, like, yeah, I don't he remember. played for the Dolphins, was terrible. Yeah, I don't remember. Whoever their new coach is, the Dolphins, he did he did much better. Yeah, I mean, they they ended on a pretty high note going to the Patriots and winning. Yeah. Uh, did you Have you guys kept up with who the Cowboys are interviewing for their head coach position? Is it is it the ex Packers coach? One of them is the ex Packers coach, which I would find absolutely <laughs> hilarious if he went there. And the other one is Marvin Lewis. I think we interviewed him for Carolina too. Yeah, yeah, they did. Exactly. The other one is Marvin Lewis of the Cincinnati Bengals, who underachieved <laughs> every single year. I could, the fact that Urban Meyer has said that he's interested. The fact that they could pick up like Lincoln Riley, like a bunch of different other coaches, and they interviewed those two, 
I find absolutely hilarious. They are going to be trash. <laughs> it's just Jerry Jones' world. I mean, he's basically looking for guys that are just going to do what he says. And probably with Urban Meyer, you're going to get a lot of pushback, and he's oh, yeah. going to be like the face of the Cowboys. And Jerry's like, no, I don't want some guy that's super popular and like going to take over my role as like the head guy here, yeah. which is like so insane because you're just costing your team wins at that point. Totally. Like it never worked. When Jimmy Johnson was the coach for the Cowboys in the 90s and they won three Super Bowls, he was the guy like you never saw Jerry Jones mm -hmm. like coming out and doing a radio show at, right after the game and people asking him like, what are you going to do with the quarterback next week? Like all this stuff. It was all Jimmy Johnson was in the press conferences and like, look how successful that was. And then he was just like, no, I don't like him because he's taking maybe credit away from me or something. And, Ever since then, they haven't won anything. Yeah, he wants to be the owner, the GM, the head coach, the assistant coach, the positions coach. Like, he just wants to be everything. It is pretty insane. I, I don't know what the deal is with that. Yeah. Well, either way, I mean, it's just like the Browns, you know. It doesn't matter who you get. It doesn't matter who you get. You're going to be trash. <laughs> like... <laughs> Because you just, they just don't know what to do. Like, they just don't have the right staff, front office, ownership. It's always just going to, they're always going to fall for this flashy guy who they can get, like, in the first round or get it from a trade and bank on him to be the savior of the team. And they just never learn. And then they're just like, well, we're going to fire another coach, I guess. And at the end of the day, you're just trash. You're clown. You're the Cleveland clowns. Good one. <laughs> Take that, Cleveland. That's the first time it's been said. <laughs> the first time. Man, I, I just came up with that. Um, Trademarked. <laughs> and yeah, Cowboys are in a similar boat. And then it'll just be Jerry Jones' son who takes over when he dies. <laughs> At age 150. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be more of the same. But I, I don't know. Hopefully we can, the Panthers can interview a lot more people too. Because I don't really know that I'm super psyched on Mike McCarthy. I wouldn't be. <laughs> I would know. And um, I would like us to interview Josh McDaniels. Because I think he's like done at New England if he gets an offer that's good enough because Brady's obviously reached an end of his potential probably there because um, they just have zero players around him oh, yeah. to help. Not And the fact is that Brady's not as good as he once was too. That doesn't help. And I think now he's like, all right, I need to go somewhere where I have like a Christian McCaffrey where I can make new plays and just – kill it with this guy and bring a fresh new perspective in um, based on offense now. And uh, I don't know. I saw Tom Brady said he wasn't considering retirement today. Yeah, I know, which put, puts a, puts a wrench in things in terms of, is he going to stay with, is he going to be able to stay with the Patriots? 
or if he's going to move on to another team. I'll be honest, it's going to be weird as hell to see Tom Brady playing for any other team. Chargers. Yeah, I know. That's that's kind of one of the rumors. <laughs> that would still be weird to me, though. Not Philip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where's Philip going to go? That dude had like a family in college, man. Like like three kids or something. He's crazy Southern. And the best trash talker I've ever seen on the f- any sports field is brilliant. <laughs> so who do you, go back to to the question I asked earlier. Who do you guys have going to the Super Bowl and winning? Say Ravens, Saints, Ravens, Ravens, and then Ravens. Yeah, Ravens. Okay. What about you, Kyle? I think the Panthers can get there. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. I think um, I think it'll be the Ravens against the San Francisco 49ers. Huh. Interesting. And and, then, and Jimmy gets them three Jimmy. nothing. Wow, three nothing. <laughs> Jimmy gets a three nothing. Jimmy's gonna kick the field goal too, because <laughs> yeah. I think he's gonna get he's gonna drive him down the one yard line five times, and this guy's gonna miss five wide left, and then a six one in overtime. Jimmy's gonna kick the field goal. And he's gonna take his shirt off, and he's gonna be a GQ model for life and quit playing football. Oh, that's a Super Bowl prediction. <laughs> and Bill Belichick's brain will explode <laughs> yeah what about you what are your thoughts packers you know i'm just gonna be unbiased about this kyle <laughs> no i would say packers but i think they're gonna lose like 40 to 3 in their first game if i'm <laughs> is it just me or do they feel like the worst team with that what are they like 10 and they're three they're 13 and what, three. 13 and three yeah well, it is it yeah. is not just you. I am a Packers fan and I absolutely do not like this team at all. Uh <laughs> I will be deleting this section of the <laughs> podcast if we win the Super Bowl, but for the time being, <laughs> I really I I am amazed, just absolutely amazed that they're 13 and 3 because they look like a trash team. Uh they they just don't look very good at all. Who do they play today? Uh, they don't play anyone today because they got oh, the second next seed. week. Yeah, so uh, who plays today? Who is plays? what I said. Oh, my apologies, <laughs> Overlord. <laughs> uh, who plays today? We've got the Vikings versus the Saints. Oh. That's on Fox at one o five p.m. We've got the Seahawks oh. and the Eagles at four forty on NBC. Battle of the Birds. Battle. Move over, Joe Buck. Nick is here. You know? <laughs> so who do you guys – Saints, Vikings. I got Saints. Well, well I picked the Saints for the suit to play the Ravens. So <laughs> they better win this one. That wasn't obvious to me, Will. <laughs> is it – it's at the – it's in New Orleans? Yeah, uh, yes, it is in New Orleans. Nouveau d'Orléans. Nouveau d'Orléans. <laughs> <laughs> Uh yeah, I've got I've got the Saints winning twenty eight to seventeen. What's your score, Will? Well, I think they're gonna blow them out, like forty two 
28, something like that. Okay. Kirk Cousins have a bunch of garbage dime fourth quarter points that don't count for, sh- you know. He just, every week he does it, you're like, oh, look at Kirk Cousins. Did he have a good game? Like, all in the fourth quarter. True. When they're behind. But Drew Brees, he wants it really badly this year. And they don't even run it inside the five. He just wants to get a touchdown. He's like so greedy for touchdowns. Like, I'm going to get a million before I retire. <laughs> no one's ever catching me. <laughs> That's true. What about but Michael Thomas catches every single one? So it's like, oh, I might as well. What about the Eagles versus Seahawks? Please be the Seahawks because the Eagles shouldn't even be in the playoffs. <laughs> That's you know? true. <laughs> so you think the yeah. Seahawks? What do you What do you have for score? It's it's at the Eagles. Just as just as a just as I, a point. I think it would be pretty low. I think that all the Seahawks do is try and run the ball with Chris Carson, and the Eagles actually pretty good at run defense. I think it would be pretty low. Plus, both offenses, uh, I think Carson Wentz is the overrated quarterback, and I think Russell Wilson is just completely hit and miss, and I think he might be missed today. But I think they'll still scratch a win. Interesting. Okay. What about you, Kyle? Birds. Okay, that doesn't help at all. (laughs) (laughs) 21-14, birds. Okay, we could be going any direction at this point. <laughs> you know what, birds? I have no idea what you're Eagles, baby. Eagles, baby. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'll be honest, but it took me about five seconds to know that that could have been both the Eagles and the Seahawks. <laughs> the only bird to me is the Eagles. Seahawks, yeah, you want to be bird. <laughs> That's <laughs> trash bird. Trash bird. Uh, the birds versus the trash birds. Okay. Yep. Well, we'll see how things end up. People listening to this already know the score, so they're probably making fun of us. <laughs> yep. One guy got it right. What? What is your prediction? Uh, well, I think the Saints are going to crush the Vikings, and I do. I think the the Eagles will lose. To the to the to the trash birds. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty certain that's what's gonna happen. I don't think the Seahawks are gonna go any further though. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Talking about the playoffs and the Eagles shouldn't even be there, in my opinion anyway. Especially you shouldn't you shouldn't have a home game if you have a worse record than the team that you're playing against, right? The Seahawks got a way better record sure. than the Eagles. Yeah. They literally had to win like four or five games in a row to sneak in. But when I look at the NFL and playoffs, I always think about the way the English Premier League's ran and you play every single team twice, once at home and once in a way. There are no playoffs there, right? But if there were playoffs at the end after th- there's 20 teams in the league, right? So it's 19 home, 19 away games, 38 games. So if at the end of the season, you'd know the best eight teams were in the playoffs if they had a playoff race. But the way this is ran, you, the NFL doesn't always play the same teams, right? If you're in a division that's harder, you play, what, those six games there, they're difficult. Yeah. And then you might have a hard schedule and have to play like the Ravens and the Patriots and the 49ers out of conference or whatever and and make it even more difficult versus a team that can have an easier schedule then they can sneak in the way the Eagles did, the way the Cowboys could have done if they didn't lose their 
bottle like they always do. But it's not even the best teams. It's not the fairest equation of doing it. That's that's the way I think anyway. I just think that if you do the playoffs, it should be the best ones. And the way there's there's not enough games in NFL season to justify these are the best teams. They haven't played everyone. Yeah, I agree. I think, well, I think they should do away with the divisions and start at, at least at the very least just off the top of my head, but I'm sure we can come up with a better system, but have some sort of randomization where all the, all the schedules are just randomly selected and they're not bound by the particular division. Like, I mean, prime examples like New England, I mean, they get to, well, at least the last, what, 20 years or whatever, they've, they've been able to crush Buffalo, the Jets, and Miami to get to the top of their division. So it was almost guaranteed that they would win their division every single year. Um, but like you said, I mean, you're going to have some, some divisions that are much, much more difficult than others. And it does, does end up leading things to be extremely unfair. I think the other unfair thing about U.S. sports and the thing that always baffles a foreigner, so I thought it was the weirdest, most bizarre concept when I moved here, is that there's no relegation system. There's no division below the, the top division. I guess there's divisions below in baseball, but they're sort of farm teams, so it doesn't sort of correlate exactly the same, right? But the way it works in the English Premier League, there's 20 teams. If you're the worst three teams, so number 18, 19, and 20, out of the 20 teams, you get demoted to the league below and the best three teams were the number one and two from from the, the league below as well as the team that won the playoffs. So the best three teams from the league below then come up. And the way it works is that fans are way more invested at the end of the season versus in tanking to try and get like a number one pick or something. You're the last game of the season could be so important. Mm. You're like, Oh, we have to win this to stay in the premier league. The players fight more passionately at the end of the season because they're trying to sort of increase their, their salaries, I guess, you know, you can take a huge pay cut by going down to the championship. You can lose TV revenue for the club. It's like really, really a huge deal. And it makes it way more interesting than only looking at the teams that are in playoff hunt or the playoff contention, like in the NFL, NBA, etc., versus the teams that just tank on purpose to get a pick. And it really rewards a division like the Ravens or the Patriots that excel, that they've gone above and beyond to get the right personnel in their organizations to draft correctly, to do all the right things. And then they're almost penalized because they're too good. In world soccer, the way it works is that you almost have an unlimited bank account. You've talked a little bit about financial fair play in here before, and the joke it is, but essentially you have an unlimited bank account because you just have an unlimited revenue from TV money and sponsorships and stuff. And it just means that if you have an unlimited bank account as, and you pick the right coaching stuff and you pick the right players and pay them the right salaries without going so huge where it completely finishes a team mm -hmm. off like Manchester United right now, that the best teams last and their dynasties. I mean, Manchester United, my entire life, they've been a great team right now is the worst form they've had. And they're still in Champions League contention. They're still a good team. So why should you punish a team that's good? It just doesn't seem right. Yeah, I never actually considered the idea of uh, having a league where you have kind of the bottom few teams that get 
knocked down to a different league and then uh, they lose especially your point about the the players taking a pay cut and all that that would be that'd be really interesting for sure even in like the nba which they do have a, you could do that yeah. yeah you could do that nba for sure yeah that'd be great cuz you've got the d league already um but it's set up kind of like the baseball system where it's like a farm team for the pro yeah um but you could easily be like whoever the top three, four teams of the D league, if you win or if you're whatever your place is, or we want to do a playoff with one getting in, you move up and then the bottom four, three from the NBA go down to the D league. And it's more of an incentive for bad teams to get better and good teams to stay good. Um, Cause I don't know. There's just certain organizations where you're just like, they've been a joke forever. And it's just like, they, they just get to be a pro team still. I I don't know. Like the Browns and the Dolphins and the Raiders. And I don't know. It's just like, they just get complacent, you know, on every single level of that organization and fans expect like, Oh, we're, See if we can win a game this year. Yeah, right. And like, it's just more passionate, more people are invested on every single front for the club to want to stay in the higher league based on the financial incentives and just reputation. Um, and then it just makes for better stories for your underdog teams that can push up and have this incredible story of, um, fighting their way to becoming pro, you know, but yeah, NBA, I think you could do that pretty easily. And then with NFL, you know, you could then start making like minor league or lower division stadiums, like in other cities. I mean, we got plenty of cities that don't have a sports team. Like that would bring revenue and things like that too. Like Raleigh, if you throw an NFL team here, like that'd be pretty sweet or just a minor league football team or something like that. And then one day they're like, we made it to the NFL. Like that'd be a cool story. Yeah, it would. I do wonder how it would work with the, uh, the draft process. I think that would be really interesting as well. So that teams aren't necessarily tanking. Um, I mean, they, they get knocked out of the league, but then I'd be curious what would end up happening with the draft process. If they lose the number one, uh, draft prospect or uh you know if it's if it's the bottom two teams get knocked out and then the the two teams from that minor league then get bumped up is it the third worst team that didn't get bumped down uh do they then get that that number one draft prospect uh you know so a lot a lot of things to to figure out but that's definitely an interesting thought i'd I'd never considered that before Yeah, the whole draft thing definitely throws a curveball into the equation. It makes it really difficult to to do that way. But the idea that there's cities here that don't even have a big, huge college of ten thousand people that have a good football team or basketball team to go to, like there's got to be college. I mean, towns in the Midwest or in the Rocky South, area, yeah. you know, that just like Sioux Falls, all that sort of stuff. You've like Rapid City, like probably bigger than you think it is it's quite remote people get really passionately behind their local sports team 
and if they ever made it to like the NFL or the NBA, like to Major League Baseball, like it would be insane. You know, could you imagine being in a city like that when it was going on? It'd be so cool. Yeah, it really would. And then on top of that, you could do like in England, you have the FA Cup, and like in Spain, the Copa del Rey, you know, like the domestic tournament where it involves all the lower leagues as well as their top division together. And the top division usually gets like a first or second round bye, so not playing some small village or whatever. And but it's still really cool Cinderella stories of a small town beating a Premier League team or something. I, th- I think just yesterday, a town from Reunion Island flew to France to play in their French domestic cup and beat a French team. Mm. And they're like amateurs from Reunion Island, you know. It's like they'll remember that for the rest of their lives. And like those sort of stories all come from having like divisions within a sport versus just one elite division and then absolutely nothing and there's so many talented athletic people to pull from there's million people or two million people have played like in the ncaa you know think of many people that don't make it to the nfl they're already the best one percent from high school for college like maybe it's like 0.1 percent from college we get to the nfl like what about the next guys down and you still hear stories of first round draft picks being busts and the seventh round guys are amazing and stuff like think about a guy that maybe made the wrong decisions and was drinking a bit in college or something or went to a smaller school and didn't really get found or like kyle bust his acl maybe once or twice and people didn't believe in him but there's there's people out there that could play in the nfl that we don't see and we haven't given them opportunity to at least experience that life and maybe for two or three years really excel in a league and then move up and what's cool about when there's more divisions it's not always just a team that moves up so like for instance now it's in the transfer window for for european soccer so in january you can buy and sell and trade players so there's people that have excelled in the divisions below the premier league or the elite leagues in whatever country it is and you score maybe 20 goals in your first 20 games and the Premier League team will make a gamble and maybe you'll get that guy a lot cheaper than you would from buying someone from another Premier League team. So why not? And it's really cool that those people came from sort of the rags to riches. Leicester City. Yeah, I'll let Kyle talk about Jamie Vardy a bit because he loves him not as much as I like Lamar Jackson but he really likes Jamie Vardy and he's a rags to riches yeah so I think I mentioned the Leicester City yeah story where it was like 5,000 to one odds that they'd win the Prem and they did it and they basically came up through several divisions within a span of a few years to basically become one of the biggest underdog upset stories in all of sports history. And there's a guy, Jamie Vardy, who's still on the team, and he's leading again this year in the Premier League goal scored. Um, 33 goal. No, he's 33 years old, too, which is pretty old for professional sports in general, but it's certainly Premier League athletes you see you know, a lot of people start to lose their speed and when they hit 30 or just not maybe what they once were because you have people 19 years old and early 20s that are so prevalent in that league. And um, he's just somewhat of an anomaly because he just seems to keep getting quicker and 
more accurate and just just a really incredible uh, player overall. Um, that's kind of defying the odds in a way for a team that, you know, is doing really well this year. Again, they're second place and uh, just don't have much of a history in the top division um, in England and kind of have forged a really cool story. And all the players based on that winning season have kind of gotten behind the team and the city has as well. And they're able to invest and just now they're going to try to be a mainstay in that league, which is a, pretty cool and another sort of example of how that incentivized tier division system can be. Yeah, I think uh, you did end up talking about what you, what is it? Leicester city? Yeah. So yeah, Leicester city. So this bloke, Jamie Vardy. So like what's really cool is like, he was amazing for some really local team called football club, Halifax town. And this was 2010 to 2011. So he's like, usually for soccer, you if you haven't been discovered and you're 20 years old, you'll never make it. You know, you can play in these random lower leagues, making 500 pounds a week, but it's not, it's just a career like a laborer or something, you know? So he played for FC Halifax. And then someone, he was playing in the Conference North, literally just like a division in England, only playing Northern towns, like probably four or five leagues below even league one like way below premier league then his team fleetwood town took a chance on him uh they're from the conference premier i mean these are divisions i've never even heard of i mean i'm english then he's for fleetwood town he scored 31 goals in in 36 games in the league and that's when leicester were like we'll take a chance on you and they were in the league just below the premier league and in two years time for leicester he got them promoted to the premier league and two years after that, he won the Premier League and was like the on the all eleven like all star team. Like scored a record number in Yeah, and score I think scored yeah, the scored the record number of goals in consecutive matches. And he did that against Manchester United to get the record. I mean, it's just a crazy story. Yeah. And that would never happen if it was just these twenty teams, this elite league where no one has a chance to then prove themselves that hey, yeah, I mean, I got a chip on my shoulder. I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to get there too. Yeah, you got to love stories like that. I think that's one of the great things in sports that you can experience some of these long shot stories. I mean, Kyle is the one that turned me on to the uh, the cardiac pack, which uh, ESPN did a documentary on. I think that's another example, although that's a that's a team as opposed to a, a single individual. But uh, I think that's that's one aspect of sports that I think people often don't appreciate as much. Kind of looking back and looking at these stories of, I guess, human will, just like pushing themselves and just believing in themselves and and ending up victorious. I mean, I'll, I'll remember that Leicester team for the rest of my life. Like, yeah. I'm an Arsenal fan. They're a lot bigger team. There's a, there's an Arsenal season where we never lost a game in the entire league, and they're called the un, Invincibles or Invincibles, sorry. And I couldn't even name you all 11 players that started on that team, but I can name you all 11 players that started on that Leicester team. That's how good they were and how much they worked together as a unit. Yeah. It was absolutely amazing. Carl's right there, 5,000 to 1 to start the season. And after 19 games at Christmas, at halfway through the year, 
the bookies had them at 3,000 to 1. That's how disrespectful it was. And they were winning the Premier League at the time. Everyone was like, oh, they're just, just a half season wonder story. They'll, they'll fade in the second half. And they just never did. And like there were stories that people put like five pounds on the bookies for Leicester to win. And with three or four games to go, like all these big gambling companies in England were reaching out to these individuals that had these odds. We're like, we'll cover you now because Tottenham Hotspurs were catching them up. And they're like, oh, instead of winning £50,000, we'll, we'll give you £20,000. And some people accepted and others didn't. And there's always stories on social media like, in your face, we've got this <laughs> massive win. Like, it's just great, you yeah. know. Yeah, that's crazy. The amount of money that some people pr- probably won on those guys. That's crazy. Yeah. And then the the owner died in some random helicopter crash just last year, just taken out of the stadium on the on the field and went down in the parking lot and died. So yeah, sorry, sad note there. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, how do you respond to that? <laughs> I was literally thinking in my head, like, well. Uh, as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have brought that out. I don't know what, I, what to say here. <laughs> but it was an event that made, like, everybody even more sort of come together in, in the whole city and on the team, too, because that was a guy who invested a ton of money in trying to get better players and better um, – equipment, better facilities, and um, yeah, just did a ton for the club in a short amount of time on the financial side and was really well-liked individual, obviously brought them a Premier League title and then he just in a freak accident dies and, you know, sometimes that can bring people even closer together. It's because he sold his soul to the devil to win. He might have done that. He might have done. So while, uh, well, I was going to say not to change the subject, but I'm changing the subject. Uh, you can, yeah. Uh, just because we got Will here, and I'm interested in hearing some some of his historical background and whatnot. Is there a particular nice. era or a particular time that you find the most interesting if you had to pick one, Will? Yeah, I think so. So I can, everybody who likes history always, there's one part, the, oh, this is amazing. And it's just, for me, it's the the Eastern Front of World War Two. Just the the sheer numbers and scale and the brutality that was involved is like no other conflict oh. humankind have ever seen and perhaps we'll never see again. Now we have nuclear weaponry where we probably wouldn't ever unleash mass numbers like that and they're probably never going to be two huge what would you we call superpowers in today's modern terminology that would bear arms and and fight in an all-out total war like no we'll never ever see that again and that's what makes it so intriguing but secondly it's the all the repercussions because of that conflict it was that we had an, an iron curtain so-called across central europe dividing east to west and different political ideologies opposing each other and we felt the ramifications of that throughout our entire life and throughout the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st the the reason that north korea exists today versus south korea is because the 
the Red Army came and liberated North Korea versus the West liberating South Korea. That that's really the the crux of it. And there's a lot of places you can look in the world now and go, oh, that's because of because of this, because of this man, because of that battle. But when you look at World War Two, it's just so intriguing to me to look at the. We think of the German army, this huge mechanized army. Uh, how amazing they were and that we grew up i grew up in great britain my granddad's fought in the war in world war ii we call it the war that's what makes it so impressive mm -hmm. you know and the united states and the europeans have taught western europeans are taught that they won they beat the the nazis the the, the german military the wehrmacht but really it was the Soviet Union, you know, they fought 90% of the German military might and we fought the other 10%. I mean, the cream of the crop were in the Eastern Front. It's it's just remarkable to see and we were never really taught that until you maybe get to a university level or something and study a bit further and you look at the numbers and what happened, you think well, it's just utterly remarkable. And some historians look at it as maybe like ants versus termites as in like just complete brutality the sheer numbers of the ants overwhelmed the termites in the end the termites being the germans and the, the red army being the ants you know but it was it was no prisoners taken it was well the germans if they did take the prisoners they tested cyclone b pellets on them before before they tried to kill the jewish population of europe in you know in their death camps they they tested those rat poison pellets on red army soldiers first that's how low they thought of them and the germans knew too when they were captured it was the ultimate fate that might end up in like a gulag that didn't get released until the 1950s or something and if not they were just killed and shot on spot so it's a it's a brutal war and when you study it it's it's fa there's fascinating stories and it's the numbers that are involved that really draw me into that conflict. If uh, Do you think that if the Germans had never engaged uh, the Red Army, how do you think the war would have turned out? I, I think it's really hard to ever say that the fascism and communism of so polar opposites that, and Hitler and Stalin those men such autocratic powerful leaders they would never have accepted a fate of of a quiet peace you know that will accept that we've divided poland and you've got czechoslovakia and i've got hungary and we'll call it call it that's good and we'll live the rest of our lives out it was always going to be conflict there was always going to be war um a lot of people say it was maybe the biggest mistake in military history to attack russia when they did in june 22nd 1941 but that was a gamble that they had to take because stalin was never going to accept this nazi soviet pact forever he was always going to be building up his military might in the east and one day he was going to come knocking on on the plains of northern europe so that's what they thought that's what adolf hitler thought that's what a lot of his military generals thought it was not the decision to invade russia that was the the fatal error it was the um it was the plan that once the door being knocked down was how to occupy but how to how to get that final stroke and in my opinion and the thesis that i wrote in college was that 
they really needed to go and cut off the oil supply straight away for the Red Army. And to do that was to take Stalingrad, send all of their army there instead of just, just their South Army. But they still ended up losing, what, like a million soldiers at Stalingrad? Uh, they had so many destroyed in the Kessel Ring when, when they were captured by the Soviets. But uh, I think there was like 95,000 that were captured in Stalingrad in the city proper. Mm-hmm. And then another 300,000 plus in the giant ring that was surrounded by the, the Soviet Red Army. And then, yeah, you're right, the, all of the the wars, the, the battles before that in Ukraine leading up to it and, and the retreat, probably a million men were lost. But when we talk about a million men, it's like ever since maybe Napoleonic warfare, a million men was nothing. These countries battles became wars a million men to the german nation was it was an acceptable loss to win a war they were always going to lose a million men we didn't have nuclear weapons yet they were trying obviously but uh they were always going to lose a huge amount of men always yeah yeah it is a remarkable remarkable section in history and in the war in general uh, my my opa fought on the German side uh, against the the Soviets, so it was uh, it. <laughs> he told me quite quite some stories when it when it came to to that whole situation. It was definitely traumatizing in in a number of different ways. But yeah, it's uh, it's tough. I can't imagine fighting in the Soviet winter as well. That that would be that would be absolutely grueling. Even the Soviet summer, like you look at how big the Russian steppe is that some of these men that were in the army group south that were going towards Stalingrad and taking like Grozny and Baku, Azerbaijan to try and get those oil fields that once they got down there, it was pretty damn hot in July, August, Mm -hmm. you know, on these dry, arid steppes. And then just like a desert, it gets cold at night. These steps in the winter time are absolutely brutal. So it was two extremes that that both of the armies had to deal with, right? But we're we're informed, probably misinformed, going back and now looking at the records that not all of the Red Army had these amazing white winter coats and skis, and that's why they were better than the Germans. They were toughing out just like the Germans. They're just a maybe a tougher breed, you know. If you look at the Russian people and what they did in that war, Great Britain didn't do that. Great Britain, we switched our lights off when the bombs came at nighttime in London and the major cities, and they rationed their food, and the women worked in factories and built shells and wrote letters to their men, but they weren't picking up guns and fighting Germans. They they weren't building an anti-tank trench in 40 degrees below freezing around the capital city waiting for German tanks to come in like the civilians did in Moscow. They just, Russian people are hardened individuals. There's a reason why they've repelled invader after invader time and time again. And what some of the stories from the civilians did in World War II are absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine. I haven't read too much into to the civilian uh, impact that they had, but I imagine I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they they had a lot of uh, women that fought on the Soviet side as well, even uh, even in the the Air Force, right? 
Yeah, they had women all over. The only the only thing I know is the one that Jude Law shagged in Enemy at the Gates. <laughs> <laughs> was that Rachel Vice? I have no idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there. I think like there was a few or one in particular who was like a record number of kills right. from a, a sniper. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then then like Finland and scandinavia there was a couple women i think too that were snipers or something but yeah definitely they were not afraid to you know say all right ladies if you want to join up like we're not going to stop you at all so well i imagine when you're throwing seas literal seas of men to to die at a certain point you can't be too picky about you know, who you're, who you're going to recruit. Um, but I, I know the women had a, a massive impact, uh, even in the ways that you described, Will, you know, in the, in the United States and the United Kingdom and, uh, and other areas just kind of behind the, the trenches in terms of creating the machinery that was used for the wars, but uh, in the Soviet and for the Soviets doing specifically going to war themselves, and and fighting do you know of any other countries that had uh women on the front line in world war ii well i mean at the end of everything when it comes to the the final hour i mean in germany there were women fighting with 12 year old boys alongside them in the hitler youth to repel people coming into berlin etc you know but uh, really i think the russian the red army were the only ones that had a, a a giant population of them but even then i think we're kind of twisted in our idea of thinking that with division after division of women soldiers just like in the civil war there weren't hundreds and thousands of regiments of, of free black men trying to fight the the rebels i mean there were regiments but there's movies about it and there's history and there's a, almost like a we want to believe there was more than there were that sort of aspect to it too but just just to harbor back on what I was talking about, how brutal the war was yeah. and how hard and Russians are, like their major city, their their cultural gem of their country, Leningrad, now Saint Petersburg, it was under siege for eight hundred and seventy two days. So over two years, that city was under siege and it never fell. Could you imagine if New York City was under siege by the Germans and has been shelled every single day? people are eating their belts and eating rats and their leather shoes i mean just the ultimate ultimate sacrifice for their country to 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 keep an entire army group occupied in their city and and to fight to the death that i just can't see any other country in world war Two, and even if you look at present day that the sort of patriotism that you see in countries around the world can you think of any anyone else fighting like that an entire city for two and a half years to to you know expunge the german beings from their land i mean i just can't see it happening that's what's so amazing about those people and why i think we should teach more to individuals in the west that the sacrifice that the Russian people went through and that we should praise them because if, if say, 40% of the German army swung and they 
punched and gave us a big le- left hook on the West, would we have succeeded? Perhaps not, you know? It just we really owe a lot to those people. Yeah. Yeah, it's remarkable. And what's even sad about that is after, shortly after the war, I mean, thousands upon thousands of those civilians and then the soldiers returning home in Russia were eventually throughout the Cold War transported to gulags and labor camps. And it's just the most mind-blowing thing. I mean, when you look at communism as a whole and how the ultimate sacrifice they thought would be enough, but then their own people are turning against them and torturing them and making them feel like enemies of the state for doing the most minor things. But then you, you have a guy who I, I fought for four years against the Germans and gave my life. And this is what I get, you know, I mean, it's just amazing to, to see where that mentality comes from. So, so you think, uh, Will, if, I mean, you, you say that it's inevitable that the Germans would have eventually had to fight the, the Soviet Union, but uh, do you think that if they had kind of hoped for the best and not started the, the war on the, the Eastern Front, that uh, they would have been able to commit a lot more soldiers to the Western Front, you think that they would have won the Battle of, of uh, Britain? Oh, I, the Battle of Britain, no question, they could have won, I think. And that's hard to say as a, as a British man, as someone's grandfather was that helped defend that country. But at the end of the day, we there was a, there was a time when every single plane in the sky that could fight the Germans was up in the sky. That's how much it came down to. That's how almost lucky we were, you know. But think about if they just had a couple more planes, you know, if they, they weren't on the Eastern Front. I mean, not the Eastern Front yet. If they, if they threw all of their, their might into Britain, perhaps they would have won. But, I mean, this was going on, what, September 1940. So this is before they're attacking the Russians. But they didn't really throw everything at us like they did the Russians. Like, even if you look at Dunkirk, could more... British soldiers being annihilated on the beaches by the Germans strafing them, probably that Hitler acted differently against the West, against the French soldiers, against the British soldiers, as he did against the Red Army. And that's, you can see that evidence in the prisoners taken versus prisoners not taken. The, the way that the prisoners were treated after they were captured, it was there were, the Red Army was dehumanized, the communists were dehumanized by Hitler. And they weren't as brutal. I feel like they could have done a lot more to try and defeat Britain. But even to the the ninth hour, it was like the, the Hitler still thought he could strike a peace term with Britain. He really did. He was scared of the Royal Navy, and he didn't want to have a, a conflict with them for the rest of time. He needed to finish them off. But he always wanted to also come to peace terms with Britain. He never, ever wanted to come to peace terms with the Russians. They did. They signed the, you know, Nazi-Soviet pact. But that was just a way to 
yeah to, to sort of ease that eastern flank to have it just a piece of paper to say hey we're good for a year or two but we're still gonna attack you in the end hmm. yeah it's an incredible change in mentality that's always an interesting thing about any great events in history or wars in particular is just a the incredible amount of stories that still can continue to come out to this day that no one's ever heard of and the what if aspect you know you can ask so many different questions based on so many different things that occurred throughout world war ii in particular and just kind of speculate you know if this had if the he had done this then maybe this would have happened and that's why you can it's still so i don't know it's just it's so interesting to this day you know um, for me, the civil war is a lot like that too. I just, I love learning about that and just the strategic moves certain people made and, um, you know, the what if scenarios and I don't know, you, I guess you could do that for a lot of different wars throughout history, which is really, you know, kind of a cool thing to do. Yeah, it is for sure. I think to your, sorry, the point there, Carl trying to make like the civil war, this battle went differently and this did that. Like that was already an age in warfare. I believe that the North could only ever win. Like I got to an economic age. That was almost like, yeah, Napoleonic times that people, I think Dan Collins says that instead they can take a punch now. They can take one, two or three punches. They can lose a hundred thousand men in a battle and get routed. And they've conscripted five million more to be in the next they battle. That whole war was you know? one hand behind the back yeah, the yeah. They they were ready to throw more. They had a better industrialization. They had more men at the end. It wasn't until Grant in the end just threw all the men at the the fights and eventually won at Vicksburg, etc. To they just threw men at you know at rifle fire just for cannon fodder, just because they could. And before that, I mean, you look at my country, Great Britain, you know, it was England was invaded by one army of like 15,000 to 30,000 men estimated that were what we call the Normans, you know, William the Conqueror. He fought one battle, the Battle of Hastings, literally on the coast. He just landed his troops mm -hmm. over there. He took the high ground, built this tiny little palisade fort, didn't even fight inside the fort. That's how cocky he was. And then won one battle against the Saxons, and he became king of England. He won one battle. Yeah. They mean, now that could never, ever happen. And really, that stopped occurring right from the rise of Napoleon. Even then, in the 16th century, you could rout a battle of 40,000 men, and you've completely obliterated the other military force. But after Napoleon, that never happened anymore. The North could always win, but... People think Hitler's mistake was to invade Russia. The biggest mistake was for Japan to attack Pearl Harbor. Once oh. America was involved in the war, the sleeping giant was awake. The, it was an industrialized superpower the world had never seen before. And when they swung their first punch, people were like, holy F, this is, no one's seen this. Look what these guys have got. These guys have got multiple aircraft carriers. They haven't even landed their army yet, and they're causing devastating blows. I mean, the world wasn't ready for that. Do you know? Uh, do you know what the Japanese were thinking <laughs> by attacking the United States? Well, 
they were reaching out to quell the threat before it's going to come to them, right? If they neutralize the Pacific fleet, then they've got all of the Pacific for themselves. They've got a giant Japanese dominion of Indonesia, Northern Australia. That's what they wanted to attack Australia too. I mean, all of New Guinea, Philippines, Vietnam, everything. They wanted a huge, huge empire, but there's always the Pacific fleet that was there that was a threat to them. I mean, they wanted to go after, but it wasn't anything like what the Germans and the Soviets, there was a, uh, a hatred for each other, different political ideologies, was as juxtaposed as the Russians and Germans. There was no, no animosity there, sort of decades-old hatred between Japan and America. It was a completely foolish attack. And once it happened... I mean, I mean, I never understand what they're thinking, but Hitler must have been pissed off. I mean, I mean, Trump might have told the Israelis about an attack, but imagine if Hitler had no idea that Japan, Japanese are planning this, and he did it. I mean, the next day he declared war in America. Could America have fought just Japan and not Germany? Probably not. Britain and Churchill would have suckered. FDR into being involved in that conflict in Europe too but I think Hitler really didn't have any choice to be at war with, with the United States as soon as Japan attacked and that's really what ended everything as soon as Japan introduced America to it it was over right you couldn't do do that there's that famous scene in what was it the Battle of the Bulge when that warm cake is delivered and the German commander finds it and he sees it's sent from Detroit, Michigan or something is still warm. And he's like, oh man, we can't beat these guys. Like these guys are delivering airmail to their troops. Why we got, we're shivering in the snow. You know what I mean? Like it's just over. Well, that was kind of the, <laughs> that was near the end, right? That was what, 1944? Yeah, that was, yeah. And think about that, like Hitler never gave up. He was a crazy fanatical person until the end. Like the Battle of the Curse, the biggest tank battle ever. Like 1943 just threw every tank they had in the Eastern Front. He goes, oh, we'll stick, stick them all here. <laughs> this is where we'll fight. I mean, it's just like a nutcase. It's literally like you're smaller. It's like me having a fight with Mike Tyson and he knocks me down, knocks me down, knocks me down. And I just put all of my energy into one big right hook and try and hit him again. And he just laughs at me. He's like, no, it's not enough, mate. <laughs> not enough. But he never gave up. He was crazy until right. the end. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. I I think he reminds me the most. The most of anyone since Hitler, Trump reminds me the most of him. <gasps> he reminds me the most of most of anyone at all. I don't think he's as intelligent as Hitler was, but I think he reminds me the most of like someone that can change the course of history one individual for the next hundred years and trump really he's already on the path to doing that and that's what's the really 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 scares me and we should keep people up at night that you know that your children's children could still be feeling a repercussion of this one crazy guy that takes a crap at 3 a.m and sends and threats to destroy cultural heritage sites in the country thousands of thousands of miles away yeah Nick, your response to that insult? 
Well, let me begin. <laughs> Will, you do not know that man. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's true. I I think the the one I think real distinction is that Hitler was uh and I know you're not making a one to one comparison. You're just saying it's similar, but I think uh Trump is so busy with business and you can certainly argue if he's good or bad at business, but I think he's so worried about business and the way that he's perceived and I think Hitler was more interested in revenge almost i mean just from from what had happened in world war one and of course how he's perceived as well so in that regard there's some similarity between the two but fortunately i don't think that trump is the type of person to start wars due to some like well, i don't know some sort of personal vendetta that he has yeah Luckily, we have way more checks and balances yeah. than the Third Reich did to where... See, I I don't believe we do, right? So, like, when, when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, they came in with tanks and most of the army were just walking on foot. There's only so much damage they could do in a 60-day... You know, that that's how long they had to destroy all of the country. They couldn't even destroy all of Poland in 60 days. Even if they tried to blow up every single building, there'd still be one barn left somewhere, be something. In 60 days, Donald Trump can destroy the world in six minutes if he wanted to. But just take his nuclear arsenal out of the equation. In 60 days, he could obliterate the country of Iran. He could destroy every structure leave it one story high across the entire nation. And he has that power to do that. He's he's like a dictator. The United States, the public of the United States, via this weird proxy electoral, electoral college thing, they vote a dictator for four and a half years. That's what they do. Because in Great Britain, you can't do that. You can't go to war like that. In France, you can't do that. In America, you can and you can veto bills as a president. You can ignore what Congress says if they want to remove you, if you have the upper hand in the Senate. And the power that a president has is unlike most countries. It's actually quite close to what Iran has. It's almost a supreme religious leader where everyone believes in what the Ayatollah is saying. That's what the president is, is here. It has a almost an insane amount of power. You guys are American and you live with it, but it's maybe normalized to you. But if you look at it from a grander scheme of the power that a U.S. president has, it's unbelievable, not only within their country, but globally. I ain't no American, Will. Tell you that right now. (laughs) I am. (laughs) He's... That's all. <laughs> <laughs> That's when Kyle gets out his gun and shoots me. Yeah. Yep. Got this wine cooler down here. It's not wine in there. Afterwards, he drives to McDonald's. Definitely does a drive-through. <laughs> yep. get- Big Mac. When he gets home, he drinks a Bud Light. <laughs> oh, yeah. Picks up a heart disease. Waits for November to vote for Trump. <laughs> That's the dream. 
That's just that's just what you do. <laughs> Don't tread on me. <laughs> God, I wish they just all turned into those shitty little snakes on their stickers on their cars. <laughs> Hot take. Hot take. Yeah. I actually don't know where that came from. Well, the don't tread on me yeah. flag. I think it came during the Revolutionary War. Um, and it was a, it's a snake on yeah. there and it's divided into 13 different pieces representing the 13 colonies, which would eventually become states. And they're saying, don't tread on me because you can't take, you can't tax my stuff. <laughs> you can't have my stuff get out of here I'm not represented Puerto Rico's like yeah me too shut up Puerto Rico (laughs) we're not talking about them okay I learned something yeah that's what it was don't don't tread on me Nick don't do it I'll be sure not to do that Kyle (laughs) oh man cool well, I certainly learned a lot. You guys want to end it here? Might as well, yeah. I think that's a good ending point. Don't tread yeah. on me. I think I'm going to divulge to too much anti-gun talk for Americans to hear, so let's definitely end it. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Our base, well, let's be honest, Nick's base <laughs> is... <laughs> Very pro gun and are forever Trumpers. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> Eight more years. Eight more years. I'm just making it up. Oh, he's not making it up. He's got <laughs> intel. He knows. <laughs> We're about to change the rules around here. Exactly. That's Drain the swamp. <laughs> Oh, well, you said it's like a dictatorship. Well, it's about to be a reality, (laughs) buddy. (laughs) The sad thing is, like, if I was in China, I would be deployed right now. Like, man, you're not American. Get the hell out of here. Damn podcast. Adolf Hitler comparison. Yep. Well, maybe this gets the fire started. If anybody's listening and thinks he went too far. He thinks this guy went too far. You know what state he's in. Don't worry. I love it. <laughs> oh, he's back. I'm, I'm proud to be an American. <laughs> God bless the USA. Yeah, he's, he married an American lady, so he should be safe now. But if he didn't, we might have had him out long ago. Some choice words. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, Will. It was interesting learning about the, the historical aspects and learning about some of the, the soccer aspects that I didn't know about either. I seem I seem to learn about football every single every single podcast that, that we do <laughs> since I know so little about it. But you added a, a few elements to that as well. So it was a pleasure having you and hopefully we'll have you again in the future. Yeah, I gotta go build that fence now. <laughs> you do that. <laughs> it is Sunday. Yeah, that's true. It's a little late though. <laughs> uh, all right, folks. 
Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week. See you later.